Talk Show. Recorded live. This is Jam Radio Network. Our children will always outgrow us, but for the first time in generations, they may not outlive us. Over the last 25 years, the percent of overweight children has doubled, a problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to EarthShare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by EarthShare and the Ad Council. Looking for a lift? Experience a seat from the soar with Michael Guido of Metter, Georgia. Her house was burning and the firemen raced to put out the fire, but she tripped one and stopped another. Ma'am, asked the chief, how do you want your house? Medium, rare, or well done? She wanted her house saved, but on her own terms. And there are many who want their souls saved, but on their own terms. If you're to be saved, it must be by God's terms. It's not by trying, but by trusting. Not by reformation, but by regeneration. Not by the church, but by Christ. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For your free copy of Dr. Guido's Daily Devotional, Seeds from the Sower, write The Sower, Metter, Georgia, 30439. Visit us on the web at thesower.com. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Thank <laughs> you. 
Good morning to anyone who got the program. My inspiration is here on this midweek Wednesday. I want scriptures coming from the 40th chapter of Ezekiel, verses 38-42. Chamber and the entries thereof by the post of the gates where they wash the burnt offering. In the porch of the gate with two tables this side and two tables on that side. Slay, slay therein by burnt offering, sin offering, trespasses offering. without as one goes up to the entry of the north gate or it were two, two tables on the 
other side was at the porch of the gate with two tables. Four tables were on the that side. Eight, eight tables upon they slew One cubit high. Also, they made the instruments with them they slew the burnt offering. Read to you the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8 to 42. And to continue our scripture reading, Word of God, for the people.
Yeah. 
broadcast there. Have mercy, Lord. Lord, lift up those, Lord. Who had substance abuse? Lord, lift up those, Lord. children to you, Lord, who get ready to go to school this morning. God, protect them. Cover them, Lord, with your wings. Know, Lord, that they're covered by the blood. Lord, lift up those teachers and those school administrators, those involved in the school system. We lift up those, Lord, police officers, the EMTs, firefighters, Lord, those who are in uniform, our men and women in uniform, Lord, serving our country, we lift them up to you as well, Lord. Keep them safe from any common danger. Ministers, our pastors, well, Lord. Lift up those, those Lord. Seems like they're lost, Lord. We lift up that atheist, Lord. I don't believe in you. Knowing one day that every I will see you. It will it will bow and every tongue will confess. Well, we'll see you at the top of the hour for more gospel inspiration music on Terry Radio 2.1 Morning Inspirations.
The body matters to God precisely because it is the human being, the locus of human activity and experience. And the fact that a member of the very Godhead has human flesh means that we cannot dismiss enfleshed humanness any longer. We must come to terms with the fact that Jesus' flesh reveals to us that flesh is good, and flesh is how the kingdom of God comes. That's Aaron Coyle Carr, a young leader helping to shape the future of the church. I'm Peter Wallace. This is Day One. Welcome to Day One the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's mainline Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Today, we conclude our special series on Day One. Here's our host, Peter Wallace, to introduce this week's speaker. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we conclude our special series, Inspiring Young Leaders to Shape the Future, produced in association with FTE, the Forum for Theological Exploration. In this season of Easter, we've been hearing from five rising church leaders who are helping us catch a glimpse of the future of the church. For this final program in the series, we're pleased to have with us Aaron Coyle Carr, who is finishing his second year as a Master of Divinity student at Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. Aaron earned his bachelor's with honors in religion and classics from Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and also studied abroad in London, Rome, Florence, and Sepphoris, Israel. He was an FTE ministry fellow in 2013 and has participated in several of their conferences. Aaron attends Berea Mennonite Church in East Atlanta. Aaron, we're honored to have you with us on day one. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. You are the final young preacher we've had in this series, which for me has been very encouraging as we contemplate the future of the church in this time of rapid change. What do you think has drawn you into the ministry at this very interesting time in the history of the church? Honestly, I think I got drawn into the ministry before I knew that it was a very interesting time in the <laughs> history of the church. Um, I grew up in Wyoming, um, which is kind of like how everybody imagines that, it's, that it is. Um, but it's a small town, a relatively small church that wasn't terribly connected to its denominational networks or even to the other churches in the community. And so I kind of knew my you know, immediate faith context and nothing else. And it was in that context that I first felt called to ministry. And then as I started um, being in more metropolitan contexts, you know, first outside of Birmingham and then here in Atlanta, I've kind of realized, oh, this is what I've gotten myself into. But... <laughs> You know, the initial experience of being called and the continued experiences of answering that calling you know, are what keep me going even in the middle of the challenges that the church faces. FDE has had a role in your own exploration of ministry. How has it helped you in your path? Oh, my gosh, in so many ways. Um, I was an undergraduate fellow actually back before the name change when it was the mm -hmm. Fund for Theological Education. And they took me to New Orleans for a, a conference, and I met so many other young people who were interested in pursuing ministry, and I was blown away by the diversity of people mm -hmm. that I met there, the different ways in which people were answering the same calling that I was feeling and was deeply impressed by that. That same summer, they provided me the opportunity to go to a preaching camp developed and put on by the Academy of Preachers, and it was there that I met you know, seven or eight other fantastic young preachers and was 
pushed to become a better preacher in a way that I never have been before or or since then, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so those two opportunities kind of formed the basis for my experiences with FTE. And then I'm pretty sure they also paid for me to go to the National Preaching Conference um, that January in mm-hmm. Louisville and have been continual supporters of me as a preacher and as, as a young leader in the church ever since. You attend Berea Mennonite Church, a congregation in East Atlanta, that has a nine-acre urban farm and is committed to creating just food systems in the city. Why is that a cause people of faith should work toward? The central ritual, or one of the central rituals, depending upon your tradition, is Eucharist. Mm. And that, to me, I think speaks volumes about how God cares about food, that God mediates God's self to the people of God through food. And in a lot of ways, the ways that we have sort of made the Eucharist so convenient with the little prepackaged wafers and cups mm-hmm. have kind of gotten, gotten us away from that. But when Jesus instituted <laughs> Eucharist, it was a meal. It was a full meal with people that he cared about. And the fact that that is a central point, I think, means that we should care about food. But also, we see throughout the Bible, God as not just the creator who sort of makes the world and then steps back away from it and lets it kind of revolve on its own, but God as the sustainer of life, as someone who is active and passionate about the way that life continues to function on this planet, and as someone who provides for animals and for human beings. And so if God is passionate about food, Human beings, I think, especially those who follow God and want to follow God, should also care about real food. Aaron, I've asked all our young leaders about the particular models of ministry that they are finding helpful in this time of change. So I'll ask you, what models or or forms of ministry are appealing to you? Question. Um, One of the things that I feel sort of drawn to, to reclaim in a lot of ways is the old model of the pastor theologian that mm-hmm. was especially present at the at the end of the 20th century. Um, Karl Barth and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer come to mind especially, although I don't always agree with their theological positions. I think the way that they were careful, very deeply studied people of faith who also were able to affect change in the lives of the communities that they were a part of, I think is really, really important to me. And so to be able to reclaim that model, I think, will be helpful goes forward. And how do you see young people like yourself helping to guide the church into the future? For me, I think the biggest way that I've seen my peers shaping the church is in a push towards justice and mm-hmm. activism and a, and a reclamation of that tradition, because the church has been a group of activists since the very beginning. And one of the things that we do at Berea is participate fairly consistently with a group of people called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Um, they're farm workers, tomato growers from Immokalee, Florida. And the before their campaign for fair food began, they hadn't received a pay raise in a, almost half a century. Mm. They're being paid something like eight cents a bucket for like a bushel of tomatoes. And in the 80s, I think, my dates might be a little off, they started organizing, and they created campaigns where retailers like Publix and Walmart would pay one penny more per pound of tomatoes purchased, which would go directly to the farm workers, and that the corporations would create structures to 
ensure that the work was being done fairly. And through an amazing um, coalition of people of faith and activists generally and the farm workers themselves, they've been able to get dozens of major companies to sign on. Walmart, most recently, be able to be a part of that has allowed me to see the way that you know, people of faith from all faiths, not, not just the Christian traditions, have been a part of really impacting the lives of people. Um, this Sunday, the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus 40 days after his resurrection. Your sermon is based on the gospel text from Luke chapter 24. Would you read the passage for us? Absolutely. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Here in your sermon is entitled, He Ascended with Scars. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It was the first prayer that I learned, probably the first prayer you learned too, and not without reason. It's rhetorically sound, in that it makes good use of parallel structure and rhyme. It acknowledges the distance between God and the prayer that sociologists claim marks all human prayer. And it can be customized or at least mine could, by the addition of the imperative bless at the end of the prayer and enlisting those who needed blessing. But it's also a deeply disturbing prayer. In the first place, it introduces children to the macabre possibility of dying in the night. What's more, the prayer reveals a startling division of the human being. The prayer does not ask God to protect the body against death, but instead confesses a desire only for the protection of the soul. The tacit confession of the prayer is that the soul is what essentially human, what really matters. Children's prayers, however, are not the sole offenders when it comes to this strange phenomenon of splitting the human being into body and soul and then ignoring the body. Perhaps, like me, you once invited Jesus to live in your heart. There are infinite variations on the so-called sinner's prayer, but they are all focused on the inner life, the nebulous soul self signified by the metaphor of the heart. Now, most theologians agree that prayer is a window to a person's theology. When one addresses God, the language is of the utmost importance. No one wants to flub it before the Almighty, so each word is chosen with care and reveals volumes about an individual's theology. What I see revealed in these prayers is this, a startling disregard for, even denial of, enfleshed human experiences in favor of the essential self contained within the soul. We did not originate this heresy, but we as Americans are the most pernicious preachers of it that I know. 
It would be ironic to claim that this is only an intellectual or theological problem. It is not. Rather, this insidious denial of human flesh manifests itself in flesh. It denies, marginalizes, and kills human bodies. Colorblindness is a good example of this phenomenon. An individual pretends not to see race, opting instead to see the essential humanness. But colorblindness fundamentally denies the embodied experiences of people of color and attempts to force them into a post-racial America that the slain bodies of black teenagers fundamentally invalidates. Or consider short-term missionaries who venture to some distant corner of the world and expend tremendous effort evangelizing the souls of the lost, all the while the lost continue to starve. Because the soul is all that matters, right? But doesn't John declare that Jesus became flesh? Doesn't Mark show us that he grew tired and slept? Doesn't Luke love to show him at the table? Absolutely, and Luke does another thing, too. When he narrates the ascension of Jesus, which is today's gospel lesson, Luke takes great pains to demonstrate that the very same Jesus who became incarnate is the Jesus who ascends to heaven. At this pivotal moment of the gospel, Luke shows us the scars, and those scars reveal something different, even uncomfortable, to modern American Christians God is intimately concerned with the full range of enfleshed human experiences and uses human bodies to bring about the very kingdom of God. Our first introduction to this fleshy Jesus comes way back in verse 15. There we see Jesus walking to Emmaus, conversing with friends, teaching and breaking bread. In the next scene, the disciples think he's a ghost. To reassure them, he invites them to touch his flesh and view his scars. He even eats a meal with them, something no ghost would ever need to do. He goes on to walk with the eleven and teach them, not by transfiguring them, but by discussing scriptures and giving their minds the tools to understand. Though Luke is clear that Jesus has been glorified and this has changed him, he remains fundamentally an embodied human. Jesus ascends to heaven as a human, and that is tremendously important. It is tremendously important precisely because we live in an era of sinner's prayers, an era where the old flesh-spirit dualism once again reigns. The language of piety is now the salvation of the soul and the mortification of the flesh, but Jesus had and continues to have flesh. His glorification happened in a body, and he treated other bodies like they mattered. When he encountered sick bodies, he healed them. When he encountered hungry bodies, he fed them. When he encountered bodies that had been pushed to the margins, he brought them back to the center. The body matters to God precisely because it is the human being, the locus of human activity and experience. And the fact that a member of the very Godhead has human flesh means that we cannot dismiss enfleshed humanness any longer. We must come to terms with the fact that Jesus' flesh reveals to us that flesh is good. And flesh is how the kingdom of God comes. There is something else, though. We would do well to note that the body in which Jesus ascends is not a lily-white, perfectly proportioned, idealized flesh. No, the body that ascends to heaven ascends with scars. And that means that, on a profound level, Jesus ascends as a disabled God. He has holes in his wrists and his feet. He has a spear wound in his belly that probably doesn't look that different from my appendectomy scar. 
I can't even begin to fathom the kind of permanent nerve and bone and joint damage that comes from the torture Jesus endured. But it remains. His scars are real, markers of his identity just as ours are. In the words of Nancy Eastland, here is the resurrected Christ making good on the incarnational proclamation that God would be with us, embodied as we are, incorporating the fullness of human contingency and ordinary life into God. The ascendant flesh is not just real human flesh. It is flesh that takes on the fullness of human life by embracing pain and disability. Jesus' disability causes us to radically consider disability in our own context by shattering the paradigm that disability is the result of personal sin. If even the sinless one can be disabled, we must reject any connection between sin and disability. Disability is not a punishment or a judgment, but a way of being human in the world. In the ascension, disability is taken into the divine life and restored to its proper place as one of the myriad reflections of the Imago Dei, the very image of God. Can you imagine how different the world would be if, instead of telling persons with disabilities how different they are from other humans, we instead told them how like Jesus they are? The disabled Jesus is dependent upon others. He is a survivor of trauma, and he bears its marks in his body. This image of Jesus is rarely talked about, rarely portrayed. We want a young, good-looking, fully-abled Jesus. But we don't have him. We have a disabled God. So far, we've been exploring the unspoken implications of the ascension of Jesus' body. Let us now turn to the explicit words that Jesus offers the eleven and us concerning what exactly we should be doing with our own flesh. In verse 47, Jesus tells the disciples, Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. In his very last moment with the disciples, Jesus says these words to them. He chooses to let them know that they will spread the repentance and forgiveness that he's been preaching about his whole life. They will do this with their bodies, and their bodies will even bear the marks of this activity, something Jesus hints at by capitalizing on the double meaning of the Greek word marturion, which can also mean martyr in our modern sense. They will use their bodies, their very lives, to spread the news that God has reconciled all people, and some will even give their lives to do so. Now, to the casual observer, this might seem like the end of the argument, because the disciples might be using their bodies to spread Jesus' message, but Jesus has returned to the old flesh-soul dualism by emphasizing forgiveness and repentance, activities that we moderns link to the mind and the heart. A closer reading of Luke's gospel, however, reveals that Luke never speaks of repentance without linking it to concrete acts of enfleshed human justice and reconciliation. When wealthy Zacchaeus, for example, realizes the depths of his economic exploitation, he promises to pay everyone back four times what he stole. Likewise, it's not enough for the prodigal son to say he's sorry. He must walk the long, dusty road home and embrace his father. When Jesus forgives the unnamed woman in Luke 7, he authorizes her presence at the table despite the resistance of the Pharisees and pulls her from the margins. Jesus' forgiveness isn't the kind that fits on a tract. It is the radical jubilee forgiveness of Israel's ancient past, the year of the Lord's favor when all the slaves were released and the land itself was allowed to rest. 
we are called to follow that pattern. Just as we one day hope to mimic Jesus' ascension, so must we also mimic his earthly life, which will certainly take a toll on our bodies, as it did on his. In many ways, the ascension of our Lord is a challenge, the passing of the torch from the master to the students and the beginning of the era of the church. The blessing Jesus gives these 11 disciples is our blessing as well, and it is a blessing we will surely need on the road ahead. Our bodies will no doubt experience pain as we raise voices and signs to protest legislation that disenfranchises the sick or permits weapons of death in places of peace. Our arms will certainly grow weary as we embrace refugees from Syria and Ukraine. Perhaps our bodies will even bear the scars of resisting violence in our neighborhoods. Certainly our fingers will be caked with mud as we work to bring food to areas where human beings consume more chemicals than they do plants. Our bodies will bear the justice of God, and the kingdom will come. And as much as Jesus' ascension represents a challenge to those who would follow him, it is an amazing comfort as well. The ascension is good news for human bodies because it means that a human body is already glorified and in heaven, and that Jesus Christ, who is that body, is profoundly aware of what it means to be human. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. More than that, though, his ascension means that bodies are good. Can God incarnate become something that is not good? And if Jesus' body is good, ours must be also. And if our bodies are good, then no one ever again has the ability to shame us because of our bodies. Perhaps you've been excluded from your community because your body is black, or you've been kept from expressing your deepest sense of vocation because your body is female, and female bodies aren't allowed to do those things. Maybe your body has recently become disabled, or has been for a long time, and someone is trying to tell you that you're not useful, that because you cannot complete a certain mechanical task, you are somehow less than human. Or maybe you've been told that you cannot sanctify your commitment to your partner because you both inhabit queer bodies. Whichever portion of your embodied reality has been used to keep you from God, the ascension of a specific, marginalized, disabled Jewish body into heaven means that the experiences of enfleshed humans matter. Your experiences have value. Your body is good, and it is the means by which God's kingdom comes. Let us no longer pray only for our souls, but let us love our bodies. Let us revel in the fact that God has chosen flesh, real, fragile, warm, hairy, human flesh to reveal the character of God and accomplish reconciliation in the world. reflections on his sermon today with our host, Peter Wallace. Aaron, the body, the flesh, has a bad rap in our society, and particularly in the church, as you point out, but you make the case that the ascension of our Lord upends that view. Instead of considering human flesh bad or fallen or somehow less important than the soul, you said the ascension reveals that God cares deeply about the full range of enfleshed 
human experiences and uses those experiences to bring about the kingdom on earth. First of all, where do you think our problem with flesh came from? Why do we have such trouble dealing with it? I could be really cliche and blame it all on Augustine, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's the only locus of it. I think, honestly, it came from first and second century Christians and mm -hmm. probably some folks before them who didn't like aspects of their own body for whatever reason, and they looked for ways to sort of authorize that into the Gospels. Um, and granted, there are some sort of specialized language present in the Gospels that might lead you to believe that. John, for example, tends to use a lot of mm -hmm. flesh-spirit imagery, but he's not really talking about the sort of division between a good spirit and a bad flesh, but is rather trying to make different rhetorical points. And so I think it comes from people who are uncomfortable with their own selves, people who aren't as careful exegetes of Scripture as they could be, and those two things met up somehow. And then Augustine, of course, sort of popularized this really you know, shameful attitude towards sex um, that we have in the church. And because Augustine was so popular and continues to be, I would think, relatively popular, it continues to be mm -hmm. a popular thing that, you know, that we have to deal with. You pointed out that Jesus is glorified, ascendant body is on some level a profoundly disabled body with wounds all over it from the torture and crucifixion he experienced and being in the world this way Jesus forces us to radically reconsider disability would you say more about how we should approach it certainly I think we in the church have two tendencies when it comes to dealing with disability the first is to insist um, like some of Jesus's own opponents did that disability is the fair punishment for sin that someone must have sinned in order to be punished with multiple sclerosis or you know, a limp in their leg or whatever it is. You know, this is what they said about the blind man in John, and Jesus mm -hmm. says, no one sinned in this case, and I think that's important. The other tendency is to sort of over-spiritualize disabled bodies and to say that, oh, God gave this to someone special. You know, This person is a special angel because they've been asked to deal with this kind of disability. And I think the fact that Jesus himself has a disability, you know, has scars and I'm sure nerve damage and all kinds of things going on with his resurrected and soon-to-be ascendant body means that we have to stop those things mm -hmm. because how on earth can the sinless one have sinned in order to deserve this disability? We don't treat him differently because he's got a disability. So why on earth should we treat other human beings who have the same flesh differently because they have a disability. Mm -hmm. Aaron, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will keep in mind this week? I think the one thing that I really want people to remember is that reconciliation and repentance is not simply changing one's mind, but that in Luke's gospel it always comes with some kind of act of enfleshed justice and right relationship making. Aaron Coyle Carr, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. This special series is produced in association with the Forum for Theological Exploration online at fteleaders.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on day one and forever.
Sam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 
Mind Block Radio. Turn it up.
theory. All right. This next question is for Caroline. Caroline, if you take the bus 60 miles to school at 5.30 a.m. and the bus is traveling at an average of 30 miles per hour, how are you going to get to your prenatal appointment and still make it to homeroom on time? Some students are tackling more than just their schoolwork, which is why more than 30% of them aren't graduating. But you can give them the boost they need to make it through by visiting BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live United. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on their very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what Living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. Some people have faulted me for talking about my cancer. They say, Johnny, you shouldn't call it yours. It's that cancer, as though it were something odious that should be kept at a distance, like it really wasn't a part of me. Well, I'm not going to be that politically correct. Yes, cancer is a pernicious enemy, but it is my enemy. It is a battle I have embraced. I have entered into cancer and come out the other side all the better for it. So I talk about my cancer as I would my quadriplegia. These difficult things have taught me so much about myself and about the grace of God. It's why the Bible says to give thanks in everything and for everything. Sure, everything is not good. There's no inherent goodness in cancer or quadriplegia. But what God is doing in me and through me because of it, that's what's great. And it's a great way for you to look at your problems today, too. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
This is Anne Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. If you want to experience God, you must choose him at all costs. You must be willing to do as Peter did in Matthew 14. Step out of the boat. Risk total failure in the eyes of others. Discover firsthand his power enabling you to walk on the water when Jesus bids you come. Again and again I've been confronted with hard choices when I've had to throw caution to the wind and abandon myself to faith in him and him alone. 
when I step into a pulpit, when I begin to write, when I commit this ministry to much more than we have resources to underwrite. Whenever I choose to step out in obedient faith and trust him, I'm actually choosing to take him at his word. Listen to me. Put him to the test. Obey whatever he says. Do it. The result will be the thrilling adventure we call the Christian life. This is Ann Graham Lott. piece of music is played with only two instruments, a right hand and a left hand. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life with hands-only CPR. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands-only CPR is recommended by the American Heart Association, and it's incredibly easy and effective. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. The power to help save a life is in your hands. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Is this radio spot where Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right, right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Here, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself and her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But stuck. then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night and feel unstuck. Because she'd finally hear someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Pray with me, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, thank you that you loved me enough that you became a man and died on a cross, paid the price for all the wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. 
I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah. Saved. 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 How can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so
All right, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. This is Jam Radio Network. This is Jam Radio one. This is Quiet Storm Inspirations. You are listening to the Lighthouse Hour with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. You are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. This is Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. You are listening to Quiet Storm Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Our children will always outgrow us, but for the first time in generations, they may not outlive us. Over the last 25 years, the percent of overweight children has doubled, a problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to earthshare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. Looking for a lift? Experience a seat from the soar with Michael Guido of Metter, Georgia. Her house was burning and the fireman raced to put out the fire, but she tripped one and stopped another. Ma'am, asked the chief, how do you want your house? Medium, rare, or well done? She wanted her house saved, but on her own terms. And there are many who want their souls saved, but on their own terms. If you're to be saved, it must be by God's terms. It's not by trying, but by trusting. Not by reformation, but by regeneration. Not by the church, but by Christ. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For your free copy of Dr. Guido's Daily Devotional, Seeds from the Sower, write The Sower, Metter, Georgia, 30439. Visit us on the web at thesower.com. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
right, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. 